Hey, everybody, and welcome to Learning from Smart People. I am your host, Rob Oliver, and wherever you are, I hope that you are having a wonderful day, and I appreciate you spending some quality time with us. My smart person today is Kelly Cooper. She has built her career in male-dominated fields from working in a science and engineering firm to being on the Canadian delegation for UN meetings where the world first united to address gender diversity in the 1990s. She started her own business in 2012 to formally create the business case for diversity and inclusion through her strategic mindset and insight, she has been able to create blueprints for executive leaders to shift their workplace cultures with fantastic economic results. Each step of her career journey is peppered with challenges in the workplace from sexual harassment to pay inequity, which she eventually overcame by diplomatically clarifying boundaries, finding her own voice, and working with the leadership to affect change. Kelly, welcome to the show. Thanks, Rob, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. So let's start right here with with kind of your backstory. That there was a very there's a lot of information contained in that intro. Tell me about kind of where you started and how you got to where you are today. Well, it is an action-packed life I've had. I've been uh, working now for 30 years in the area of sustainable development. Is the way I describe it, and that means um, back in I guess it was the late 80s. Um, the world came out with that phrase. And it was about how do we reconcile the environment, social issues, and the economy such that they're all working in unison. So my beginning foray of my career was always on environmental issues as it relates to the economy. So things like climate change. How do we help the environment without wrecking the environment? You know what I mean? Not, I'm sorry. How do we, best way to explain it is not compromise the environment for the economy. So now I shifted that focus from environmental thinking to how does that apply in the social setting? And it came down to a, a pursuit of uh, gender diversity and inclusion because um, it's the same thing. It's like we, we used to say the social element of sustainable development was giving funding to a First Nations um, community to help speak up at a pipeline project but it was only one way for funding. So it didn't make sense. I had to see a return on that investment. So the social side of this is to say, we have to look at our people and be able to maximize our investment in our people in order to improve our bottom line. Okay. Um, so I'm thinking in real practical terms, what we're looking at is even with COVID and what's going on, the finding the balance between taking the precautions to ensure safety for um, the folks that, you know, for everyone, and yet not shutting down business in a way that just destroys the economy and, and kind of finding the balance. Is that is that kind of on the same line as what you're talking about? Um, I'd have to have you re-articulate that question. I'm not quite clear what you're asking. I'm sorry. Okay. So with COVID, um, mm -hmm. you know, there's quarantining and there's um, shut, you know, um, yeah. school shutdowns and work from home mandates and all of those things. And because of that, there is, there are all of the safety precautions that can be taken. And in some ways, some of those may be detrimental to businesses and be able, uh, detrimental to the economy and kind of 
trying to find the balance between what is the safest way to move forward and yet one that doesn't completely destroy yeah. the economy. Yeah. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, so that would be in the health domain. So I, I started out in the environmental side of things uh, and now I'm looking at the social side and really trying to explain why this is an important issue to executives because before, and as I say in my book, we, you know, people think of this as a women's issue, but in fact, it's actually an, an everybody's issue. And I really articulate why it's important to pay attention to this, how it's a, a competitive advantage in an organization to pay attention to this. And there's an economic return on your investment from doing so. There's also social benefits of doing so. There's an equal playing field across the board, not just favoring women, but it actually helps men too. And so there's many things I could go on about with this topic because <clears throat> just, <clears throat> I would say in recent times, we're starting to see more and more cases of men stepping forward and having their voice to explain what's happened to them in poor workplace cultures. And that is a good thing because no longer are we pointing, like women have been the reason this whole conversation started, but in fact, it actually benefits men too. So you'll see that in the hockey, people are speaking out in the hockey about what's going on in dressing rooms and with coaches and stuff. Read the paper yesterday about Boy Scouts in the US $850 million lawsuit. Okay, well, those are boys. Those are, that's across the states. That's big. You know, these things are coming out and, you know, it's, an, it's important they do in order to change the, the culture of what's going on in these organizations. Okay. And for me, as a person with a disability, um, I feel like disability is kind of the lagging indicator that there's been a lot of work done for, um, you know, diversity and inclusion for women for um, here in the United States for people of color you were talking about for the First Nations in Canada uh, mm -hmm. and I, I feel like sometimes people with disabilities are left behind in that or a semi-forgotten group what's your reaction to that thought I I agree and, and sympathize with what your point is there but I have to say that here in Canada we are making efforts to focus on that um, any of the work I'm doing now has moved it started out with a focus on gender, how to get more women into senior positions or into technical positions in the natural resource sectors, because that's the sectors I was really predominantly working in. But now it's blown completely open to all underrepresented groups. And that includes disabilities. And that includes both seen and unseen disabilities. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really important to um, emphasize that too, because especially during the pandemic, there has never been a more... Um, appropriate time to bring this conversation to light and to start really uh, making change happen. Yeah. So to me, it, it's very exciting. I, I have a, I have a family member who took his life um, 15, 17 years ago now. And so um, I've always wanted to do something to advocate on behalf of mental health issues. And it's funny how this is becoming a sort of a backdoor way of sharing that, like not wanting to share that history per se, but share that um, passion for a solution. Yeah. What I, I am very sorry for your loss. And yet I, I recognize your passion and, and appreciate that. So you, you were kind of laying out the fact that there is a, an ROI, a return on investment yeah. value to this. And people are saying, okay, can you, can you tell me more about like, how does that, how does that return on investment show up? Is, is it just like, pardon my, pardon me for presenting this 
uh, but but is is it just a feel good return on investment where I feel good because I've hired people who typically have had obstacles to being hired or or can you make the case that there is a real financial return on investment there? So there has been uh, many companies now, have been many companies now that do document real dollar return on their investment. And if you, again, it's in my book, I give many examples of leading companies in this area. And they, and some can claim as much as $19 return on investment for every dollar they invest in diversity and inclusion. That's mm -hmm. quite significant. And as I say to people, you can't, you can't get that in the stock market. Sure. <laughs> so when you look at inclusive cultures, people are always like you say, well, how do you make sure this isn't just a feel-good exercise? There are many business case reports out there now, and I dial into a couple of key ones to give you some facts. Um, but organizations with an inclusive culture are said to be twice as likely to meet or exceed financial targets. They are three times as likely to be high-performing six times more likely to be innovative and agile and eight times more likely to achieve better business outcomes. Now people don't understand, well, how does that work? Well, for I'll give an example. Say you have a product that you're working on, but if you're only having, let's say a, a group of white men building that product for um, a particular audience, you're not maximizing your audience. But if you, and if you start to get a lot of different views around the table from different groups of representation, you start to factor in thinking that they would never have had in order to reach a product that's actually more inclusive product. You could say that that just opens up your market in a way that you couldn't couldn't tap before because it wasn't meaningful to that audience. So those those are the ways that the dollars just start to, to pile up quickly. Okay. The other piece is, is when you create an inclusive workplace culture, you have less turnover. So there's less cost associated with the churn of hiring, which is very expensive. And so that's easily documented because you can start to see who's come in, who's come out, why. It's very important to do these exit interviews because then you kind of understand, okay, well, that person was being harassed or perhaps there was bullying here or this person was being excluded or undermined or what have you. And so then they start to pull together this data and you start to be able to tell a story and then you start filling those gaps. And by filling those gaps, you create that uh, understanding about what's going on here. And then you can start proactively deliberate intention wise, building your team uh, with maximum performance. Okay, so let's talk about that. Um, you've made, you've definitely made the case for the fact that it's financially, uh, you know, it's financially valuable to do this. And if folks are then saying, okay, how do I do it? Um, can you give us some guidelines on like, what's the, what's the plan? What's the blueprint that to move towards this kind of, um, you know, this kind of environment and culture in your workplace? Well, I always start with the executive leadership team because without them and without their buy-in, you're swimming upstream. Sure. So the first step is to uh, engage with the leadership and explain to them the, what I call the value proposition of diversity and inclusion and get them all on board. From there, you end up um, coaching them on how to not just, not just commit to this, but model that behavior. There's a, an onboarding of learning how to behave as one wants the future to be. And then you start to execute a plan. And there's a whole bunch of stuff. I talk about that in my book about uh, developing a, a key, uh, like a, a strategy for across an organization and start to um, just go, go into depth on who to bring in, how to bring them in um, in order to create an inclusive workplace culture. 
All right. Can you, can you give me some examples then um, of when you're saying who to bring in and how to bring them in? Can you, you just give me some thoughts on that, please? So now, so now it's gotten very interesting, right? Because of the pandemic, it's been a real opportunity as I see it, because no longer are you pulling from a community that you live in for resources, human resources, right? So you're able to bring people in from um, perhaps there's a, a, the disability workforce association in your state, but not in your city. Okay. Previously, people would be like, I have to have somebody right here in my city, or I have to have somebody in my face, in my office. Those days are opening up. We're having a whole new landscape for how we work. And so we're able to access those organizations that aren't situated here or in your organization's geography. And you're able to contact them and say, I need somebody who can do, like, here's the job description. Right. And you make sure that job description is written in a way that is neutral language. So like, um, not, not workman, like workman, but workforce, you know, these sorts of things. Sure. And you just, you, you create that and you send that and you start getting new people into your organization that you wouldn't have otherwise considered. Got it. Uh, yeah. I, I do some work with HR professionals and um, what you're talking about is the pr- creating a neutral job description. I, I would actually encourage them to create function-based job descriptions yeah. where it, it literally describes the, this is what this position involves and that, especially for people with disabilities, that opens up the conversation um, to find out whether or not they can accomplish the functions of the job yeah. with or without accommodation. And, and I think that that is something that applies to everybody, not just people with disabilities. Although in some ways I feel like we are at the, at the forefront of that. And, and if it's working mm-hmm. for us, then it's working well for everyone. Absolutely. I, I would imagine, though, that you get, some, uh, you get a fair bit of pushback on this. Um, not everybody, you know, it's not like Kelly shows up and everyone says, oh, this is the best idea ever. How do you deal with that adversity? <laughs> yeah, well, it's been a long journey. Um, and perhaps this better answers your first question that I didn't maybe um, accurately answer the way you wanted. But I grew up as the youngest of five kids. Um, I had three older brothers and two that were like 10 and 12 years older. And so I always describe it as having a three-headed father because they were quite a bit older, right? And they loved to tell me what to do. And they loved to over-talk and, you know, push you around verbally, physically, you know? Um, And so I kind of learned to have the chops to speak up, to um, call out stuff, boundaries, (laughs) Um, these important life skills that I had no idea were being developed under crazy times, you know, you can imagine being that uh, much younger. I can, I I can tell you a little story about that. Like I remember my, one of my brothers used to hang me over my, with my, by my ankles over the banister. And the other brother was at the other end, tickling my armpits and telling me not to, (laughs) not to squirm. So it was like, that was the game after dinner. Okay. So Um, I grew up learning how to defend myself. And so when it came time to focus in on this discussion, I had no qualms or issue talking with men. I had no problems pushing back on how they challenged me. Um, Very logical minded, helped as well. So I, I haven't had, I've actually 
had a lot of good conversations with the target audience I work with because um, I can succinctly, although I'm not seeming to be doing as well of a succinct job today, it's probably a summer brain, but <laughs> I apologize. Oh, no worries. Um, but yeah, I usually am very succinct and logical and they, we have good conversations. And frankly, I, I've um, given my book and I say, you know what, how about you read my book and then tell me what you think and major change is happening. So I'm very excited to say that because people who are stalwart, you know, guys who just don't give a hoot about this topic are now engaged. So it's very exciting. Um, and I see that energy moving forward. I see guys now wanting to compete because that's what they do. And that's what I love. It's like, let's create the conditions for success. Let's show them the goalposts. This is what we're aiming to do. Now, men being men and they love to compete, like I say, now let them go. Right. And that's what's happening here in Canada. We're starting to see that in one particular sector I work in a lot right now is the forest sector. Very male dominated. Sure. Very traditional. People will be like, Kelly, what are you smoking? Why why are you talking in this in this particular sector? It's one of the hardest. But obviously I don't uh, wilt to a challenge. And I've actually find the people in the forest sector really wonderful people. And maybe it's because they have a, a predisposition toward resilience like forest fires are constantly happening and sure. climate change is happening. And, you know, yeah. so these people, their personality type is quite open to learning. And, and that's really the key here is everyone's learning through this journey, but these guys are quick to sort of see um, how it benefits them. Yeah. I, I will throw in a, just a, a real quick side story. You mentioned the forestry industry and um, out in Western Canada, there is a tree called the lodgepole pine. And I don't know if you're familiar with this. You can you can steal my story and use it. But um, the lodgepole pine is it grows like 70 feet tall. It's straight as an arrow. It's very resilient. In it's very flexible with its um, limbs. But it's also because it's so straight and so tall. They that's why they call it the lodgepole because it goes you know it's a center support. But the seeds from the lodgepole pine are encoded in resin, and that resin can only be melted by far by extreme heat. So the seeds won't germinate until a forest fire passes through. And so the, the opportunity for growth doesn't happen until they've been through the fire. And so that's kind of what I see as resilience, where mm -hmm. there are some seeds of growth that can only be unlocked by going through difficult circumstances and, and making, having difficult conversations. I love it. I want to just go back to something that you said. You're talking about your own personal ability to to have those difficult conversations and to stick up for yourself is there what are your thoughts on empowering the people who say okay i didn't have um older brothers who held me over the banister and tickled me and, and taught me that i taught me how to be kind of survival, the game of survival right yeah. uh, they didn't you know nobody taught me how to be assertive nobody taught me how to yeah. um, stand up for myself what kind of, what's your message to folks who say I'm not where you are, but I do, I've, I've got something that I want to share. It's a, it's, everybody has their own journey and they all have the power to learn. And I think a lot of the conversation on diversity and inclusion circles around EQ skills development, whether it's on the guy's side of the equation or the women's side of the equation. Okay. You said e so EQ, EQ skills. E yeah. Uh, emotional quotient. Thank you. So things like assertiveness, impulse control, self-awareness, um, social responsibility, things that are beyond 
that's always about what's what can I do for the greater good? Um, women have the same capacity to have self-awareness, to seek out where their gaps are perhaps on developing the skills that are necessary in order to know how to set boundaries, in order to know how to speak up and have a voice. I would argue the same skills need to be for guys too. Any other underrepresented group as well. Just, we have to have awareness. It starts with self-awareness, mm. you know? And then how do we move through that in a way that creates a respectful environment where everyone can feel they belong. Okay. So you talked about the work that you do with like the executive team and the, the top level team. Do you, I'm assuming that you've got to do work within the workplace as well. Are are there some suggested actions that you can say, here are some things that, that I don't want to make, I don't want to demean anybody, but like, here are some things that everybody can do to promote diversity and inclusion within the workplace. Yeah, well, um, they could start with being a good role model, right? How do you want to um, have your work environment present? So if you say, see somebody who is uh, perhaps saying sexist jokes, racist jokes, you don't, you just say something you can interrupt right away and just, just do an ouch. You know, that doesn't really work here in our culture. So, uh, yeah, don't bother. You know, little interventions like that. You can be um, chairing a meeting and you can say, we're going to rotate the chair. And the chair will be married next week or whomever, you sure. know. And so that's another quick hit. You make sure that the roles and responsibilities are shared equally. Not always the women, for example, getting coffee and tea um, for the meeting. Um, you can outwardly explain how you are a, um, a working father and how, you know what, it's not easy for me. I'm trying to get to my daughter or son's recital or game and it's a, tru- a struggle. So we all are in this together. Okay. You know, we're all in this together and we all want to have that balanced life. So these are little things. I don't know if that answers your question correctly, but yeah, no, it, it does. Um, that's exactly what I was looking for. Just some suggestions some you know even what you gave their quick hit suggestions to say all right if we're looking to make major change major change doesn't happen overnight it starts Mm -hmm. with small changes in behavior and small opportunities in which people are feeling empowered and and to me let me just get your reaction to this what you're talking about in some ways is the golden rule to treat others as you would be treated. But I think it's actually more than that. It's a, it's a step beyond and it's deliberate empowerment of others, not just, not just equal treatment. What's your thought on that? Well, you definitely, I mean, if you're in a position to be able to empower others, yes, I guess we're all capable of doing that. Obviously some roles in an organization are more capable of doing that. Right. So um, one of the interesting things I've learned through my research is that it's the middle management level that create is sort of the greatest pushback. So it's um, you can have one thing with the leadership commit, you know, waving the flag that yeah we're onboarding a DNI policy and we're going to be doing all kinds of great things here rah rah rah. But if the middle management isn't on board, they can just go yeah we heard that crumple it up throw it in the garbage. We're not doing that, you know, and that's quite common. So you really need to get those guys on board. Um, So in terms of empowering people, it would be the leaders that need to really work closely with their middle managers to 
uh, ensure that they are bought into the commitment and the change that's coming. Got it. Okay. Um, I'm just thinking about this from, and maybe we covered this already, but white middle-aged men typically are the, the brunt of where this all kind of gets pointed. Uh, what are your, what can you say to them? Because listen, I'm white, I'm middle-aged, even like I've got a disability, but, um, how, how can we do this so that white middle-aged men aren't always the bad guys? And are there things that, um, you know, ways to do this so that uh, it is creating an environment where um, it, it's not expecting, not expecting those guys to have to fall on the sword some way and, you know, take responsibility for what has been a, a generational issue. Did, does that make sense at all? Yeah, I understand what you're getting at. And, and I totally agree. Like, I don't work in that mindset of these guys are the bad guys and they need to be fixed. It's not like that. Not at all. In my mind, I see it's just a new way of thinking, which comes with a new way of being and that it benefits everybody, including men. And so I do talk a lot about the benefits to men specifically. Okay. People get upset when I do that because they're like, Kelly, what are you talking about? This isn't about, you know, making men look great. I'm like, no, no, you don't understand. Like these guys have a lot to gain and they don't understand it. And we can't be making them the problem. They are the solution because to have men's engagement on this topic is the only way that they're going to start talking to other white men in a better way. And that's the only way they're going to start coming out with their true stories. And really this, a lot of this topic is about creating safe spaces for women, right? No more harassment. Make sure you can raise your points if you're getting uh, disproportionately paid. Um, all those kinds of things. But it's also, as I mentioned in a previous commentary, it's about giving men a voice where they have not had a voice. Okay, and that's really important. And I remember when I was, so I approached this issue, not just with organizations, but I've done it on a sector-wide basis. And you might go, oh my God, that's crazy. But it's, it's been an incredible journey I've been going through, uh, again, deep dive in the forest sector, but it's um, been three years there and I'm just going to be continuing with another three years. And what I found when I created the, um, the steering committee that was represented by public, private, not-for-profit, indigenous and academia folks from across the sector and across this country, at the table for our first meeting, I had men who were um, telling their stories. And, and uh, it, was, it was a powerful meeting because we got to learn um, of some perspectives that weren't there before about this issue. And this guy shared about how, I'll just, you know, humor me for a second. He shared about how he um, had an eight, you know, eight month old, uh, sorry, eight month, his wife was eight months pregnant and he was having to take out a client and this client wanted to go to a gentleman's club and he did not feel comfortable doing that, but he felt he had to. And I know a lot of guys are going to laugh at that, but, Right. Some guys would be super uncomfortable with that. They're like, my wife is home with, you know, about to have my baby and sure. I shouldn't be here. You know, it's awkward. Yeah. And so he um, shared the story. He says, I never shared this story with anyone ever in my life. And here he was coming out with this and he was almost in tears. And it was really incredible because I just thought, wow, we are getting to some new data here or some new conversations, which have to start happening. Because when we get to these conversations, this is where we have true openness and we can start creating a respectful workplace for everyone 
Okay. And then men start to see the benefits to themselves. Sure. So there's that piece. Then there is, I would argue, men not feeling they have to be the main breadwinner. It's very stressful. And there are connections from that to increased heart attacks, um, connections to that to suicide. Okay. And these are things that are impactful to men. So they need that social, them having the ability to attend those events for their kids, for example, instead of just focusing on their careers, allows them that social cohesion that they need just as much as women with their kids. And that's how they have um, their cup full inside their heart and that they are able to live longer. Sure. Yeah. Healthier. So does that make sense? It does. And what I'm hearing you say is that is twofold. Number one, it's not just creating a safe place for women. It's creating a safe place for everybody to be willing to share. And additionally, um, you're seeing that everybody has things that they struggle with. And so the, the middle-aged white men are saying, yeah, it's not easy for me all the time either. I've got some, I've got some real struggles as well. Listen, Kelly, I could probably talk to you for quite some time, but, um, if people want to learn more about you, uh, to connect with you, uh, tell me about your book, about your website. What What's the best way to find you? Okay. Um, so my website is uh, www.centerforsocialintelligence.ca. And that's center spelled in the Canadian way, C-E-N-T-R-E. Uh, and then it's F-O-R, not the number. Okay. Social intelligence. Um, so that's my website. You'll find everything about me there, including my book. Uh, which is called Lead the Change, the Competitive Advantage of Gender Diversity and Inclusion. And uh, it, it does speak to why this is important from an economic point of view, and then gives the blueprint for how to take action. Perfect. I will, I will put a link to that in the show notes so that people can get there. And um, yeah, wonderful. I also encourage people to, to reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'm very uh, engaged on LinkedIn. So if any of the listeners are like, hmm, that sounded kind of interesting. I do regular posts and do quite a bit on LinkedIn. So uh, reach Excellent. out. Excellent. I will put a li- I will put your LinkedIn uh, profile in there as well so that people can find you pretty okay. easily. All right. Uh, you've been wonderful. It is now time for three questions to establish your humanity. Are you ready for these? I think so. Sure. What I think is- I can do this. All right. What is your favorite story about yourself? Oh. Well, um, hmm. I guess it could be when I decided to go to Africa when I was 21. I um, finished university, University of Toronto, and I was just in love with the idea of Africa. And I just uh, decided I was doing it. So I saved money for about six weeks. I worked hard and then I took off for two months <laughs> and I went backpacking um, by myself. I, I met up with a group of Australian and New Zealand, other like-minded kids. Right. And off we went. We went from um, Kenya and Nairobi, uh, Nairobi, Kenya to um, Zimbabwe and did everything like, uh, like we tented the whole time. And I jumped off of Victoria Falls bridge, like falls and, rode on the Serengeti balloon. Like it was magic. It was a magic time. 
came back, never wanted to come home. I wanted to actually get a job there. Okay. Actually tried to get a job there as get this, a poacher (laughs) at the Serengeti. They looked at me like I was on drugs. I was like, right. No, I can't leave. I was so in love with it. Wow. But anyway. The awesome story. Uh, Do you have any pets? Yes, I sure do. What do you have? I have a Shipu poodle. Okay. Poodle. She's adorable. She's now eight. What's her name? She gets a shout Kiki. out on the show. Kiki? Kiki's never been on a podcast before. Thank you for asking. No problem. Cool. Um, all right. And last question for you. You're Canadian. So mm-hmm. um, if you are getting poutine, um, where is the best poutine place in either Ottawa or, you know, Toronto, what, where has, where is the place that you'll say, this is where you've got to get the good stuff. I am so embarrassed at this question because I don't eat it. Oh, Poutine is definitely a gig here, like mostly in Quebec. Okay. Um, yeah. It just looks like a heart attack waiting to happen. It's cheese curds and gravy on French fries. And I've always been afraid of it. So I'm right. Okay. <laughs> I would not be able to give you a good answer there. Well, it's okay. I forgive you completely. I will just say this, that um, coming growing up in the States, I remember I was in Sarnia, Ontario. The very mm-hmm. first time we went out and the guy I was with was like, yeah, I'll take some gravy on my fries. And I'm like, this, that looks <laughs> terrible. And then I tried it and I was like, wow, that's actually really good. Um, it, of course, it takes something that is unhealthy to start with and makes it even more unhealthy. But, yes. you know, we all need to have our guilty pleasures. So consider yourself forgiven for not being able to give good poutine <laughs> recommendations. Kelly Cooper, you've been phenomenal. Thank you for being here. I appreciate you sharing. Uh, for all my listeners, thank you for um, being with me today. I appreciate you. Um, Listen, I always am happy to hear from you, whether it's on social media or swing by the learningfromsmartpeople.com website and use the contact us form. And I will remind you as always that when you stop learning, you stop living. Have a great day, everybody. 